national and local elections just around the corner. It's not uncommon to hear the candidates say whatever they believe necessary to get elected. It reminds me of the following story. There was a man in Florida in his 80s who called his son in New York one November day. The father says to the son, I hate to tell you, but we've got some troubles here in the house. Your mother and I can't stand each other anymore. We're getting a divorce. I've had it. I've put up with this for over 60 years. I'm not putting up with it anymore. I want to live the rest of my years out in peace. And I'm telling you now so that uh, you, don't, and your, you and your sister won't go into shock later when I move out. Well, he hangs up and the son immediately calls his sister and tells her the news. The sister immediately calls the father and says to dad, Don't do anything till we get there. We'll be there Wednesday evening. The father agrees and says, All right, I'll wait till you come. He hangs up the phone. He yells upstairs to his wife, Okay, I've got him coming for Thanksgiving. He says, but what are we going to tell him for Christmas? I love that. Fortunately for all of us, uh, God is not like man. He doesn't lie. He's not manipulative. And he's certainly not worried about the latest polls or whether he'll get elected. Uh, His word is truth and therefore we can count on it. You know, in our ongoing study through the book of Romans, last week we came to a a third and final section which begins in Romans chapter 12. And from here on out, we're going to be looking at how we are now to live as those who have been saved, as the Bible says, from the wrath of God by recognizing, first of all, our own sinfulness, repenting from it, turning from sin and turning toward God, and responding with faith to the finished work of Christ. God says that if any man's in Christ, he's a new creature, old things pass away, all things become new. And as we look at this, and we turn in our our Bibles to Romans chapter 12, in verses 3 through 8, which is going to be the text uh, that we're going to look at today, God tells us in no uncertain terms, those who have come to faith in Christ, He tells us in no uncertain terms that we are to use our gifts. He says, use your gifts. And there's a purpose behind what He has to say in Romans chapter 12. We're going to pick it up in verses uh, 3 through 8 where we read these words. It says, For through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. It says, For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. He says, And since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, Let each exercise them accordingly, if prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith, if service, in his serving, or he who teaches, in his teaching, and he who exhorts, in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. After World War II, a group of German students volunteered to help rebuild an English cathedral that had been severely damaged by German bombs. And as the work progressed, they became increasingly concerned about about a large statue of Jesus whose arms were outstretched and beneath was was this inscription. It says, Come unto me. But they had particular difficulty trying to restore the hands which had been completely destroyed. And after much discussion, they decided to leave the hands, to let the hands remain missing. They changed the inscription to this. Christ has no hands but ours. And that's exactly the message of Romans 3, I mean Romans 12, verses 3 through 8. It's the basic truth that he emphasizes here. 
You know, the work of Jesus Christ in the world is in the hands of those who belong to him. And in essence, what he's saying is, is that, you know, he has no hands but our hands. And he has no feet but our feet. And we need to recognize and understand that as, as Christ uh, turned over his earthly ministry to those who follow him, he said this as a great commission in Matthew 28, Go there, therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. You know, if you think about it, his present ministry in this world, he has turned over to us, and we are his hands, we are his feet. And we need to recognize and understand as we look at this that those who have been freed from the bondage of sin and have been made alive to Christ are, are, are saved, in essence, very simply put, to serve Him. And we need to understand that. You know, the last time we were together, uh, we learned from Romans 12, 1 and 2 uh, that the first obligation of every bondservant of Christ is the supreme worship expressed in offering ourselves 100% committed to Him. He said, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you'll know what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. That we're to offer ourselves 100% to Him. And we talked about that. We're to offer Him, first of all, our souls. The Bible says, what would it profit a man to gain the whole world but to lose his soul? Because there's only two things that are eternal, the Word of God and the souls of mankind. And we need to recognize and understand that our destiny is determined by whether or not we put our faith and trust in the, in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Christ for the forgiveness of sin. The Bible says that we're to offer Him ourselves first and foremost. We're to surrender our heart to Him. Then once that's been accomplished and once we have been made into new creatures, as the Bible says, or Jesus said, once we're born again by surrendering our heart, Many of us have this knowledge in our head, but we've never surrendered our hearts. We've heard that Jesus died on the cross. We've heard about sin. We've heard about the resurrection. We've heard of all of these things. And we come to church and we go through the exercise that religion has us go through, but we've never surrendered our hearts. And he says that we have to first start with our relationship begins with our heart. It's surrendering our heart. God, forgive me, for I'm a sinner. Forgive me. For I've run from you. Forgive me. I am everything that you said I am. I'm guilty. I'm in rebellion. I don't, hold, I, I don't hold your standards. I do fall short. Everything you say about me is true. Forgive me and I throw myself upon your mercy. And the Bible says a broken and contrite heart God will never despise. That I believe in Jesus Christ, death on the cross in my behalf. I believe in the resurrection. I believe in his resurrection from the dead. Indicating not only that he has the, the power and the authority to forgive my sin. But also to offer life because he's conquered death. See, that all starts at a moment in time when we surrender our heart. And the Bible says at that moment in time that we're justified or declared just before God. Now we're told to take that even further. And that is that now we're to offer Him ourselves completely, 100%. We're to give Him our bodies. We're to give Him our minds. We're to give Him our will. Not my will, Lord, but yours be done. And that's the essence of what we find happening as we go through the rest of the book of Romans. See, before we came to faith in Christ, and, and, and we need to remember, too, that the Apostle Paul identified himself at the very beginning of our study as a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that we don't forget that, it's a beautiful picture, the idea of being a bondservant to Christ. I want you to, to, to see the transition that went on here. Because he's writing to a group of people that in Rome at that time, there were probably 60 million slaves. And the one thing that every slave wants is freedom. And for him to say that I have chosen to be a bondservant to Jesus Christ, he's taking a play on words that we should all understand, and that's this. 
before you and I came to faith in Christ, the Bible says that we were slaves to sin. That sin was our taskmaster. When we came to faith in Christ, the Bible says that we were dead before to God, but alive to sin. And through faith in Christ, we're now dead to the power of sin in our life, and we're alive to God. And therefore, we have the privilege and the freedom to choose to make ourselves a slave to a better master. See, the Lord Jesus Christ is our master who freed us from sin. But we are incapable of saying, Lord, I want to be your slave. Because the old master that I had, the master of sin, destroyed my life and had nothing to offer. But you have everything to offer. You have life. You've given me forgiveness. I found mercy. I found peace. I found grace. I've got everything that I need in you. And so I'm going to offer myself to you 100%. And the prayer of Isaiah is a prayer that God will never turn his back on. And that is this. Lord, here I am. Send me. Use me. In fact, if you've got your Bibles, turn ahead to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I want to show you the logical argument that Paul uses not only in the book of Romans, but also to the church at Corinth. The very logical argument is laid out in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It's a subject that has to, or it's a, it's a passage that has to do with immorality of all sorts. And basically, if you look at verse 9, uh, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, or covetousness, or, or drunkards, or revelers, or swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And what he's saying is, before we came to Christ, we fit in that category somewhere. Now, you may fit in a different place than I fit, but I fit in that category. And he says that, and such were some of you. Every one of us fit in that category of being people in rebellion against God. At one form, in one form or another, one shape or another, we all fit in the category, as God says, all are guilty, fall short of the glory of God, none are righteous, all sinned. And we need to recognize that. He says, and such were some of you. But the big contrast is this. What makes us different? What, what makes my life different today than it was then? The difference is found very simply in that we were, some of you, but we were washed and sanctified justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Spirit of God. The difference between who I used to be and who I am now is the day that I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins, the Bible says I became a new creature that moment in time, that instant in time, that day, that historical day when that took place. See, I'm no longer who I used to be. And now I'm a child of God to those who believe in His name. John chapter 1, verse 12. That's just the truth of what God has to say. That's who we used to be, but no longer. See, we're sanctified, we are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God. He goes on in verse 18, and he concludes this very logical argument with these words. He says, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. And now he asks a very basic question. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit of God who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. Notice that simple logic. Don't you know that you no longer belong to yourself, that you can do and choose to do anything that you want to do whenever you want to do it? You, you, know, you no longer have the, the privilege to just do what you want because, oh, it makes me happy. The Bible says, don't you know that when you trusted in Christ, the very Spirit of God was given to you who indwells you, who now teaches you truth, convicts us of sin and judgment and righteousness. We've got the Spirit of God living within us, those who have trusted in Christ, as a down payment, Ephesians 1 says, that we have a relationship with the eternal God of the universe. 
He goes on and says, For you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. You've been bought with a price. Your freedom and my freedom from sin came at great expense. The expense was Jesus Christ and His death on the cross. I think oftentimes we need to go back to the Bible and read exactly what price Jesus paid so that you and I could be freed from the power of sin in our life. The bondage of sin. When you go back and you look at everything that led up to that moment of crucifixion, you'll see the, the serious pain and suffering that our Lord endured. In fact, in Hebrews 12, chapter 12, it says that He did exactly that. He endured the pain and He despised the shame for the joy that was set before Him. What joy was that? Our freedom from sin and our reconciliation back to God. See, He paid an awful price, an awesome price. We've been bought with the very precious blood of Christ. I can't help but think of throughout the history of those who were enslaved to, to, to others who got their freedom and that freedom was paid at a great price by somebody else who laid down their life so that others would have freedom. That's the same picture that we have. Jesus Christ, for those of us who put our faith in Him, died to set us free from sin. And the very logical question that's asked at that point is this. Don't you feel like you owe Him something? I don't know about you, but when people do something nice for me, I have a certain sense of obligation. It's like, wow, you know, you know, th this person gave us an opportunity in business when we first started out. This person helped us out when we were going through tough times. This person was there for us. And there's a certain sense of, how can we ever repay you for what you did at that moment in need in my life? How much greater should that sense of responsibility be as we come to the Lord and say, Lord, what, what can I offer you in return for the price that you paid for me? Your death on the cross, the blood that you shed, the pain that you suffered, the, the, the shame that you, that, you, that you despised and yet endured, how much more do I owe you than people on earth that I feel an obligation to who do nice things? See, he says, don't, don't you get it? Don't you understand? And that's why he says in Romans 12 that it's our reasonable spiritual service of worship. It's only reasonable or logical that because Jesus gave all to us, that we in turn give all back to him. Now, the question you've got to ask yourself is this. Is that true of your life? I ask myself, is that true of my life? Have, have I given him everything back in return? Or are there areas of my life that it's like, hey, I'm going to continue to be the master of that area of my life. Thank you very much. I'll give you these areas, but I'm going to keep these to myself. I'm going to keep this area over here. That's kind of an untouchable. You know, you can't have that. You can't touch that. You know, and what's unfortunate as we look at these, in other words, what he's saying is, hey, it's only reasonable that you and I recognize and understand that we've been bought with a price. You know, the act of spiritual worship, giving, giving ourselves our soul, body, mind, and our will, 100% marks the Christian's entrance into divine usefulness. You know, once we give him our all, then he can use us and accomplish great things through us, not because in and of ourselves there's anything that's worthwhile at all, but because we are now an, a, a vessel, so to speak, that God can pour himself in and pour himself out through. So we need to recognize that, that God's order of obedience for his people has always been this, total surrender, then service. Total surrender, then service. And in this particular passage, what he's doing is he's helping us to understand that, um, that we are to have unity in message and commitment, but there'll be diversity in service. Unity in message and commitment, but diversity in service. In Romans chapter 12, that's what we're looking at. Now, before we go any further, I'm going to make what may appear at first glance to be a rather harsh statement. 
but I want you, you know, don't bail out on me. Listen to what I have to say, because ultimately, I think it's going to be quite helpful. See, the purpose of offering ourselves to God as a living sacrifice is not some mystical or monastic thing, but it's eminently practical. It's eminently practical. We can't truly be sacrificed to Him and be inactive in His work. Did you hear that? We can't truly be sacrificed to the Lord and be inactive in His service. And on the other hand, we can't be truly successful in His work without being genuinely devoted to Him. They go hand in hand. See, this passage utterly destroys the notion that Christians can be committed to Christ and yet be inactive in His service, that we can be committed to Christ and not obey His word, that we can be committed to Christ and not surrender our will to His will. I don't know how many Christians that I know who say with their lips, I'm committed to the Lord, and yet in their life, there is no activity whatsoever that would reflect any type of commitment to Christ. Think about it for a second. I want you, as I always have to do, examine myself as to whether or not what God is saying about me is true. How many of us give lip service to God, and yet there is no activity in our life in any way, shape, or form that could be useful to the Lord for bringing people to Christ or building up the kingdom of God? How are you today in His service? How is God using you? How are you using the gifts that He has gift or gifts that He's given you to serve Him? That's really the essence of this passage. And it's very penetrating and very convicting. You know, I know people that, you know, in the position that I'm in, I get an opportunity to see a lot of people throughout the country because of being involved in baseball chapel and things like that. Also get to meet other pastors. And, uh, and I, you know, and, and it's true that, you know, God can use unfaithful people. I don't know if any of you realize that or not, but God can use unfaithful people. I know two pastors right off the top of my head. One, and both of these guys are pastors of huge, growing churches. And, and yet I also know that, you know, one of them was guilty of sexual immorality. And the other is guilty of financial improprieties. And yet, from an external standpoint, you look and go, wow, man, God's really blessing. And we, I had a conversation with one of them. Yeah, but look how God's blessing my ministry. And you go, hey, don't, don't be deceived by what you see. Because God will bless His Word. And He promises to do so. And as the Word goes out, God says that I will bless my Word and it will go out and accomplish and bring forth the purposes for which I sent it forth. But validation of Christian ministry is never based upon numbers. We can't get deceived by that. Validation of Christian ministry is based upon what? The accurate and faithful preaching of the Word of God, hopefully through faithful servants of God who are not hypocritical in the things that they teach. The things that they teach are the things that they themselves employ and they live them themselves. See, the validation of Christian ministry, according to the Apostle Paul, who said, hey, you know, that the, the church of Berea was more noble-minded than the people of Thessalonica because as he stood there and preached the Word of God, they examined the Scripture to make sure that what he was saying was true. And as long as what he was saying was true, the Word of God is the power of God. The Word of God, you know, people say, hey, what's the Word? Hey, here, here's a response for you. Anytime that somebody says, hey, what's the Word? Living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of man, able to separate bone from marrow. That's the word. And look at the look on their faces. <laughs> Sorry I asked. Hey, but it's true. You know, that's the word. You know, the word is living and active, and we need to recognize and understand that. 
And so as we look at this, what we need to realize is that, you know, we've got to be very careful to understand that God has given us gift, a gift or certain gifts to use in His service. And I am convinced that God doesn't give gifts without, us, without letting us know what they are. He's not into playing games with us. He's not into messing around with us. He's not into, uh, you know, wasting time. Because His Word tells us, well, we're to redeem the time wisely. That every minute of time that we have from God is a precious gift that should be used to glorify Him and, and to serve Him. He's not into playing games with us. As you sit here today and you listen to these words, the, the question that you've got to ask yourself is the one that I ask, and that's this. You know, if God has given each of us who have come to faith in Christ a gift or gifts for His service, the question that I ask myself is, what is that gift or gifts? That's a logical, reasonable question. And, and you need to ask, what is the gift or gifts that God has given to you that you can employ in His service? Every person who's come to faith in Christ must at some point recognize what that gift or gifts are. Because if we have been saved to serve and we have, then it's time that we understand how we are to serve Him and the gifts that He's given us that enable us to do that. So when a believer walks in obedience uh, to the Lord and we're filled with the Spirit, we walk in obedience, there's no question in my mind that we'll know what that gift or gifts are. So the harsh statement is this. If you don't know what your gift or gifts are, I'm going to challenge you to ask the question, have you totally surrendered yourself to the Lord? Have you totally surrendered yourself to the Lord? Lord, here I am. Use me. And as He leads you in your life, have you walked in obedience, allowing Him to lead and you follow Him? Because as He impresses that upon your heart and He leads you into areas of ministry and service, it's only our disobedience and our, our unfaithfulness and unwillingness to follow Him that keeps us or prevents us from knowing what that gift or gifts are. So if we're sold out to Him and we're walking in obedience with Him, then He will reveal to us what that gift or gifts are so we now can serve Him. If you don't know, the challenge is this. Are you walking in obedience with Him or are you so busy doing things as this world is filled with things that we can keep busy doing? So many of us are busy but not many of us are busy serving the Lord. As we surrender our will to Him, and He reveals Himself to us, and as we get to know Him more fully, He also begins to share with us the things that we need to know so that we can serve Him. See, that's the essence of Romans chapter 12. And specifically, the current passage that we're going to be looking at in the context is this. So let's go through it and identify three things uh, that are basically essentials um, out of this present text for our absolute usefulness of God as they relate to using the gifts that God's given us. Number one, if you've got Romans chapter 12 in front of you, notice what he says. For through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. The proper attitude that we're looking at has to do with humility. It's summed up in one word. The proper attitude for serving the Lord is summed up in one word, and that's humility. And as we go through this, let's take a look at a couple other words that will help us understand it. Notice the word for. It starts the sentence out. It says, for through the grace given to me. The word for indicates a transition of what he's just said, which is what? Total commitment and dedication to the Lord. 
So now he introduces total service to the Lord. It's a bridge between the two. Once I'm totally committed to the Lord, now I should serve him. And the bridge between the two is the attitude of humility. We've got to serve him with a humble spirit. Humility. Notice what he says. Not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. You notice that? Not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. I like that. You know, that lack of fun, that foundational virtue uh, causes many believers to stumble. When we get arrogant, when we get prideful, when we get kind of boasted and, and puffy about, you know, what, what God's doing through us and how God uses us and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, what's interesting is that without the, without the attitude of humility, we run into a problem. You know, the Christian life, I did a wedding yesterday, and one of the things that I always like to encourage people to understand is this. The Christian life is a life of self-denial. The Christian life is a life of self-denial. Jesus said, if any man wishes to come after me, follow me. Let him take up his cross, uh, denying himself daily, and follow me. It's a life of self-denial. It's not a life of what am I getting out of this and what can I get from this and how do I benefit from it and if I do this, Lord, how does this benefit me? It's not that at all. See, the Christian life is total surrender to the Lord and walking in obedience with him. Not my will be done, God, but yours be done. And there's no consideration for, well, how am I going to benefit from this? You know, it's a life of, of self-denial. The basis of everything worthwhile in the Christian life, notice too, is just through the grace given to me, is grace. By grace we've been saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's a gift from God. So none of us could what? Boast. The opposite of humility is boastfulness or arrogance or pride. And we're justified by faith and we're told that the, the just shall live by faith. We're saved by grace and we're to serve by grace. Everything is there and the key to this is in the idea or the, or the mindset of thinking. He says, I urge you, he says, or the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, not to think, it starts in our minds. See, since we've already given God, what, our minds, we saw that last time, you know, not to be conformed to this world, transformed by what? By the renewing of your mind. How is our mind renewed? Our mind is renewed as we're into the Word of God. We're no longer to think as the world thinks. We're to think as God wants us to think. I've already given Him my mind. And so He says, okay, Chuck, now in your mind, you need to think like Jesus. Well, how did Jesus think? Well, the only way that I know how to develop a new mindset is to go to the Word of God and say, hey, Lord, you know, what kind of mind should I have? Well, if we're to have the mind of Christ, all we've got to do is turn to Philippians chapter 2. If you've got your Bibles, jump up to Philippians 2, and we'll find out exactly what he's talking about and this whole idea of humility. Philippians 2, we read these words. As, we'll start with verse 1. He said, If therefore there's any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and compassion, make my joy complete, notice, by being of the same mind. Maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. And do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. You notice that? Have this attitude in yourself that was also in Christ. That attitude or mindset is, you know what? I am going to start to consider others more important than myself. I am going to live a life of self-denial. 
I am going to live a life of sacrifice that is pleasing to God. I am going to put other people before my needs. I am going to do that. And you know what's awesome is when you live in an environment where we've got a husband and a wife who both have that same mindset that put each other first, put their children first, their children put their parents first, everybody's continuing to put each other first. You know, it's a beautiful arrangement and a beautiful relationship where really God is honored and served by that. Without that selfish and, and prideful, arrogant attitude of me, 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 my, 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 I, I, I. You know, we live in a culture that it doesn't understand humility. It doesn't make any sense, but that's the world system. Do not be conformed to this world. What does this world want us to do? This world wants us to take credit for everything that we do. This world wants us to, to, to puff ourselves up. You know, I see it all the time in athletics. It drives me crazy. You know, a guy makes a play, and he's jumping around, pointing his finger at himself, pounding his chest, going nuts. You know, it's like, hey, look at me. Everybody, look at me. They want to take their helmet off. Now they've got to penalize guys 15 yards if they take their helmet off. And you ever see guys are all torn with that? Oh, I'm going to get 15, 15 yards, $10,000 fine, but I want everybody to see who I am. And they're going like this running up the, it's like you know it's, it's hilarious everybody wants everybody to see who they are look at me it doesn't make any sense when God says you know what don't worry about people looking at you because the only person that matters is me and I see you and I'm not unjust as not to reward those who serve me I see what you're doing you don't have to go around going look at me patting yourself pointing you don't have to do any of that and I love the simplicity of a person who just kneels down, they bend their head, and they just point to heaven. A beautiful picture of humility. It's not me. It's God. 1 Corinthians 4, read it sometimes, talks about the fact that, you know what, what do you and I have that we can ever take credit for and boast about? Has, have, is it not true that everything that we have comes from God? Our intellect, to be able to make a living, to be able to be in business, to be able to make money, all comes from God. Our abilities, our physical abilities to be able to drive to work, to be able to get out of bed, to even have life itself, all comes from God. So why in the world will we brag about that which God has given us? The Bible says if we're to boast in anything, let him boast in the Lord. That's boast on Jesus. See, it goes back to what I was already talking about. If somebody does something good for you, you can't wait to go around telling everybody what a nice person that is and look, look what they did for us and I can't wait to tell them and I can't wait to brag upon them and I can't wait to tell them what a wonderful person this is. Hey, how much more wonderful is Jesus? I want to ask you a question. When was the last time you bragged about him? When was the last time you boasted about him? When was the last time you said, boy, you know what, if it wasn't for Jesus Christ, I wouldn't have the ability even to make a living. If it wasn't for Jesus Christ, I couldn't get out of bed in the morning. If it wasn't for Jesus Christ, none of us would be here because the Bible says he holds the universe together. I think he's worthy of boasting. Let's brag on him. Let's tell people about Jesus. Because too many of us want too much credit ourselves. And you know what? In and of ourselves, there is no credit. That's why he's saying, you know what? You've got to think with sound judgment. Notice the contrast that's there. Going back to Romans chapter 12. He says, he goes, For through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. But the contrast is it. But think with sound judgment. What is sound judgment? Sound judgment is seeing ourselves as God says we are. You hear that? Seeing ourselves as God says that we are and as God sees us. And that is this. There is nothing good in any of us. Period. There's nothing good in any of us. And the only goodness that comes through us is the goodness that we find in Jesus Christ 
our Lord. That is a healthy view of oneself. Let me just tell you something. The Bible nowhere talks about people with low self-esteem. That is a bunch of psychological garbage. We live in a world today talking about, we've got to build this person's self-esteem. We've got to build this person. Hey, listen, you know what the biggest problem the Bible it talks about as far as mankind is concerned? Pride. We don't have a problem with poor self-image. We've got a problem with an inflated self-image. We all think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, and it affects sound judgment. We need to see ourselves as God sees ourselves. And that is, there's nothing good in me other than Jesus Christ. That's why I'm going to brag about him. See, that's the truth of the proper attitude of humility. Each of us needs to recognize the gift or gifts that God has given us. Not for the purpose of us boasting about, oh, look at me but so that we can use that gift in his service so that we can say to the world, look at Jesus. The Bible says that we are salt and we are light. And as the world sees our good deeds, may they glorify our Father who is in heaven and not us. We need to deflect all the glory from ourselves and back onto the Lord because that is exactly who is worthy to be praised and not us. The second thing, and he introduces to us uh, for the first time the, the idea in verses 4 through um, uh, 5, these words. So, so just as uh, we have many members in one body, all the members don't have the same function. So we, who are many as one body in Christ, and individually members one another. The whole idea of a proper attitude and humility is followed by a proper relationship with one another in harmony. We are to get along with one another. As diverse as we are, and all you got to do is look around in a room like this, and uh, you should stand here and look at uh, There's a sea of diversity. It's a sea of diversity, but it's a wonderful thing. And he introduces for the first time in his writings the concept of the church, that there is one body, and there is one head, who is Jesus Christ. There is one body, the idea of unity, and yet there's also the idea of diversity. We are united in purpose, we are united in message, we are united in commitment, but we are greatly, uh, but we, but we are uh, very diverse in the gift and gifts that God's given us in order to accomplish the task that's at hand. That's why I said there's, there's many members. Even though there's one body, there's many members. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, when you get a chance to read about that, but it has to do with the idea that every one of us are different and every one of us are important to the unity of the body of Christ. When the body gets out of whack is when one person thinks they're more important than others. Or when one person thinks what they are doing in serving the Lord is more important than what other people are doing serving the Lord. And so an unhealthy body is one who would concentrate on one thing. Uh, one extreme or the other. This is the most important thing. And that's not the case. We are all gifted differently for the purpose of bringing people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And when the body works in harmony, it's a beautiful thing. When it doesn't, usually at the foundation of it is the attitude of pridefulness or arrogance that our ministry is more important than your ministry. Or our ministry is so important that we're going to do everything that we can to get rid of other ministries or manipulate other ministries in order to become what we want them to be. And that's not healthy at all. 
In fact, there's one body, many members, and the word function has to do with the work or the office. The, new, uh, the King James says the office, which has to do with you know, the various offices that are given, spiritual uh, church offices, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, deacon, all of those are church offices, but not, not many people hold those offices. But all of us as members of the body have been given a gift or gifts for the purpose of what? Using them. That's what the function is all about. There are many members, they don't have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Bottom line is this. All of us are interrelated. All of us need one another as members of the body of Christ or the church of Jesus Christ. We need each other. We form a, a, there, there's a purpose or a function to what God has given us in order to minister to one another. We need to see that, and we will in a second, as we look at what the gifts are that God has given us, how diverse they are, but whenever they're exercised properly, the harmony that comes about. The proper service, we'll look at the, the rest of this, this particular passage. The proper service, I summarize it in one word, heartily. I love that word, heartily. Colossians 3, 23 and 24 says that no matter what we do, we are to do our work heartily as unto the Lord, because it's the Lord God whom we serve. Heartily has an idea of uh, vigorously or enthusiastically or zealously. Man, to be excited about the gift or gifts that God has given us for the purpose of, of using them and exercising them to build up the body of Christ. Man, we're to be pumped up about the gift that God's given us. And I don't know about you, but every Christmas, like, you give gifts and stuff, and some of them you get excited about, and others you kind of go, oh, look at that, a gift. You know? It's kind of like, but man, you know, when God gives you a gift that you can use for a service, you've got to be excited about that gift. I mean, we've got to use it heartily and enthusiastically. In fact, enthusiasm has with the word in God, in Theo, in God, man, to, to in God be enthusiastic about the gift that he's given us, to use it passionately. And I'll guarantee you, if we're not excited about using the gift that God's given us, sometimes you've got to examine whether or not you really have the gift you think you have. Because if it's a burden and it's not, you can't get excited about it, then you may be putting yourself in a category of trying to do something in your own strength and your own flesh that just isn't fun to do. So let's take a look at these gifts that God's given. Kind of examine yourself, see which one may apply to you. First of all is the gift of prophecy. It says, and since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us exercise them. Let us use our gifts accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith. Now, for many that look at the word prophecy, they immediately think, oh, somebody who tells the future. And that's not what the word means at all. It means very simply this, one who declares truth. A spokesperson for God, declaring the truth of God. We declare the truth from the Word of God. Declaring truth. Now, what's interesting is m much of what is declared from the Word of God may be future. So, for a certain extent, there is a, a predicting of the future. For example, the Bible says Jesus Christ will return. It hasn't happened. It will happen. And so, in, in essence, that... Uh, word of God is predictive in that this is what's going to take place. Much of future events, all of future events, are, are predictive in what will take place. But for the very essence and understanding, we need to recognize that the gift of prophecy is the gift of being able to stand before others and declare the truth of the Word of God, to use His Word. When God called Moses to deliver Egypt, uh, Israel out of Egypt, Moses gave the excuse. He says, Lord, I can't do that because I'm not eloquent. I've never been good at public speaking. I can't stand before people. And, and, uh, and he went on and he was talking about, although it angered God because of Moses' lack, lack of trust, he said, is there not your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know he speaks fluently. Listen to what he says. You are to speak to him and put the words in his mouth. 
and I, even I, will be your mouth and his mouth, and I will teach you what you are to do. See, the gift of prophecy is a gift of being God's public spokesperson, primarily to God's people first, but also, we can also, uh, through his word, reach unbelievers. Let me give you an example. At the marriage retreat a few weeks ago, we had a couple stand up, and, and a guy who, who was sharing said this. He said, I came to Calvary, and I came to Kindred, and I sat there, and it was the first time I'd ever really ever been to church and heard a Bible study per se. He goes, and I walked out of there, and I knew that what was being said was true, and God was convicting my heart that, you know what, I was guilty before God, that I was a sinner, that I needed to repent from my sin, that I needed to turn to Christ and believe in Him. And see, when the Word of God went out and truth was spoken, God used it because He says, my Word goes out, doesn't come back void or empty. And so here was this person saying, you know what, I sat there, and I heard the truth, and God used it to convict and penetrate my heart, and it's one of many stories that he told of how God brought him to a point where he finally fell on his knees so to speak he surrendered his heart and gave himself to Christ you see the word of God and see that's what concerns me about about quote the church today we're so concerned about making people feel comfortable that we've sacrificed sharing truth see we, we don't have to worry about helping God out all God says is you know what I'll even get them there if you invite them and you be faithful to teach the truth to them and I'll use my word to penetrate their heart and it's all about God, not about us. So let's stop worrying about entertaining people and let's start worrying more about their eternal destiny and bring them into environments where they're going to hear the truth of the word of God. The gift of prophecy is being able to be a spokesperson from God and just telling it the way that it is. And I like that because that's exactly what he said. He goes, you know what? He didn't candy coat it. He just told it the way it was. And I understood that. See, every one of us need to tell people in ways that they understand the truth of the Word of God. Speak the truth, do it in love, but don't sacrifice it because it's the only weapon, the living and active weapon that God has to penetrate the hearts of man and to bring them to himself. The gift of service is the second thing that he, that he talks about. And the gift of service is, is, is a fascinating gift because it has to do with, in general, just the whole idea of serving God. In Acts chapter 6, where it talked about the separation of preaching and teaching from serving, uh, it had to do with the idea of the gift of service. It's everything that you could imagine behind the scenes, so to speak. I love this because there are people in this body that have the gift of service. There's a guy who comes every week and he does the sound. None of you even know who he is until sometimes he turns off my microphone to get attention or something like that. That's the only time we know... <laughs> It's the only time we know he's here. <laughs> you know, and, and he does it willingly and voluntarily, and he does it heartily, and he doesn't complain about it. You know, these, these things on the windows, I don't know if you noticed, somebody puts those on those windows because a lot of times they're not there, and I know there's somebody who does it sometimes. And, uh, you know, and, and they do that. You know, and the guys, you know, the people that bring donuts and the pre people that bring coffee, and, you know, we, we notice the people that are up front that do the announcements. We notice the musicians. We notice all of that because they're up front. But, you know, the body is diverse and its members, many members, but there's one body for the purpose of bringing it all together so that God can be honored in what we do. It's a wonderful thing. You know, the whole idea of serving others, you know, all of that goes along with that. I, I mean, my wife sits back there, and you talk about a person has a gift of service. You know, she just sit there, and she does the tapes, and she does everything, and she dresses me, and, you know, and she does all of that, you know. And it's just, you know, the way that it is. 
And, and it takes all of that, you know? So there's no big gift, little gifts. There's no major gifts, minor gifts. Every gift is important for the building up of the body of Christ so that Jesus Christ can be given glory. He talks about teaching. And the obvious fact that teaching has to do with the systematic teaching of the Word of God. It has to do with, you know, getting into Scripture and be able to put the Bible on a level that people can understand. That is the gift of teaching. Being able to put it, as I put it, on the bottom shelf so that every person has access to it. Getting rid of all the big seminary words, getting rid of all the huge words that people sit there and go, what did he say? They're, I don't understand. But to be able to take Scripture and, and to be able to put it on a level so that people can understand it. And then they can walk away and say, you know what, this is what I need to be doing in my life. I understood what was said. It's a wonderful thing and it's a gift. I mean, I don't know about you, but how many times have you opened the Bible, you read something and went, what in the world? What's that? What does that say? I mean, you know, you sit there and I certain times I open it up and I start to read and go, Lord, man, I'm so glad that you're here. I'm so glad you're going to get me through this because at this point right now, I don't understand a thing of this. And uh, we got three days till Sunday, so don't let me down. <laughs> but he always comes through. You know, he always comes through. And, and it's, an, it's a wonderful thing. And so we need to recognize and understand, you know, even, I mean, Jesus was the supreme preacher and teacher. Think about this. After his resurrection on the road to Emmaus, he was walking with two disciples and he began to talk with them and share with them and they didn't even recognize who he was and, and he started to teach them from the Old Testament all the way up to the current events that had taken place, what God was doing. And the disciples later said, w weren't our hearts burning within us as he taught us the word of God? Isn't that wonderful? You know, the gift of teaching is a gift that, you know, when you stop and think about it, there's nothing worse than people not have, you know, thinking they have gifts that they don't have and how uncomfortable it is to be able to, to be in an, in an environment where you're trying to watch somebody get through something and it's torture for them and it's even more torturous for you. You know, we've all been there and we've got to be very careful because, you know, many people who grow up in, quote, religious environments are led a certain direction because that's what's expected of them all to the unfortunate um, situation of laying aside, well, wait, wait a minute, but what's God's plan? What's God's gift? How has God gifted that person to serve the body of Christ? And it's an, and it's an awkward thing to discuss, but we've got to look at it and say, hey, you know what? We have to look at the Word of God and say, hey, if, if a person's not gifted in a certain area, and we've all got to be careful that we have small groups, we've got people that try to teach Bible studies, and you know what? And inevitably what happens is that people stop going. And the reason people stop going is because it's torturous to go watching somebody try to exercise a gift they don't have and on top of it, you're not learning anything in the process or if anything, it's even more disastrous as you're learning something that's not true or is heretical. And so what happens is people begin to vote with their feet. They go, you know what? I'm not going to subject myself to that anymore. We've got to be careful as leaders to make sure we've got people that are gifted in the right areas and to exercise their gifts for the benefit of the building up of the body of Christ. And those sometimes make tough decisions, but at the same time, there's not a choice. It's not an option. You know, exhortation. I love this gift of exhortation. The word exhortation has to do with being called alongside and building somebody up. Ask yourself the question, have you ever had somebody come into your life at just the right time when you were about as low as you thought you can get and they came along with just the right words to build you up, to pump you up, to get you excited again, to take your eyes off your circumstances, to put your eyes back on Jesus. I mean, that person is exercising a gift of exhortation. 
I don't know how many times in my life where, man, things where I, I feel like I'm as low as low can be, I get a note in the mail or a phone call from somebody. And, and inevitably, the word is, hey, I just want to tell you what God has used, what you've done or used you through the preaching of your word and what he's doing in our life, what he's doing in our, our, our marriage, what he's doing with our children, what he's doing in my business. I mean, you know, how God has used the word of God through you to make a difference in my life. And wow, I'll tell you what, all of a sudden you go, man, you know, you get all pumped back up, you're ready to go again. See, we all need that, that word of exhortation or building a person up. The Bible says that Barnabas was a son of encouragement. Could you imagine having a person that, you know, they just come and they let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as a habit of some, but encouraging each other and all the more as we see the day drawing near. The gift of encouragement to build each other up. You know, it also has to do with, it may mean, hey, you know what, chief? What you're doing is wrong before God. And, you're, and, and, and it's called sin. And you need to turn from sin and turn to God. Encouragement isn't always telling people what you think they need to hear. Encouragement is telling you what God wants you to tell them in order to build them up and bring them around. I'll give you an example. I met with a person not too long ago and said, listen, I'm sorry, lady, you can say whatever you want to say, but you are living in sin. Having a sexual relationship with someone other than your spouse is sin. And you know what? You can tell me that you're not selfish. You've always been this, that, and the other thing. But let me tell you something. You're guilty of sin. And you can speak the truth to that person. You can do it in love, and you can try to help them. And that's a gift of encouragement that causes them to say, wait a minute, you know what? You're not going to say, but all our non-Christian friends, you know what? You deserve to be happy. You've put up with this for so long. You've done that for so long. It's your turn to be happy. And yeah, you know what? You run to those people and they tell you what you want to hear. But the difference between coming to a believer is you're going to hear the truth of what God wants you to hear because those who can turn a brother from sin can save him from a myriad of problems, even death. We've got to not sacrifice truth and say, well, we're just trying to encourage one another. We can encourage one another by telling each other the truth. The gift of encouragement. The gift of giving. The gift of giving, you know, God gives people, certain people, more so than others, with what I would call a Midas touch, the ability to make money. Now, a lot of you are sitting there going, really? <laughs> That's true. God gives, certain people has given them the gift of giving, the ability to make money so that they can give to the Lord's work to build up the body of Christ so that Jesus gets all the glory. There are people that, man, you know what? instantly a need comes up, they write the check. Don't hesitate, don't think anything of it. And they're not thinking, well, what am I going to get out of this? It's not that at all. It's that the Lord has given me the ability, the gift, to make money for the purpose of giving liberally, generously, for the purpose of building up the body of Christ and reaching the world with the gospel. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Now, it doesn't take away the fact that all of us should be generous as far as giving is concerned, stewardship, the issue that everything is God's and that we are merely managers. We need to recognize and understand that. But I'm talking about a supernatural gift to be able to do abundantly beyond anybody can sometimes comprehend. Every one of these gifts fall into that category. And the, la the last two are leadership. The gift of administration, to lead or to administer and to do so with diligence. It has with it the idea of standing at the front of a ship and giving direction. What we see happening oftentimes in our culture is not leadership at all. There's no vision there at all. The vision's all left in the, in the hands of the pollsters. The vision is, what do I need to do to be elected? What group's saying what? And how should I reach certain people? Which way is the wind blowing? And that's leadership today. That's not godly leadership. Godly leadership says, hey, 
God has given me a vision of where he wants us to go to build up the kingdom of God and to bring glory to Christ. And the vision is there and, and, and follow and this is the way that it's going to take place. See, that's godly vision. That's godly leadership. It's not, oh what, what, oh, what do you guys want? Do you want me to preach the word or not preach the word? Eh, don't care. Why? Because I, it doesn't matter because God has called me to do a certain thing. So it's not like I can worry about what you like, don't like, how you, if you want to be entertained, not entertained, whatever. You know what? When a person understands their giftedness and their calling and what they're supposed to do, it's not anything bragging whatsoever. It's recognizing that and then utilizing that gift for the purpose of bringing glory to Christ. See, leadership is exactly that way. And all of these work hand in hand. And then there's the gift of mercy. The gift of mercy you know, to be able to walk into, you know, a hospital room and to be able to bring comfort to people that are going through a difficult time. To be able to walk next to somebody and encourage them and build them up and to have the gift of mercy and to do so with cheerfulness. I hate hospitals. In fact, you know, sometimes I think that after I leave a hospital, the person's probably glad they're closer to death than they were than when I walked in. And that's like, I hate him, man. I mean, I know it. And that's like, hey, and that's why, you know, that's why, you know, you'll see people that have that gift. That it's like, oh, go to hospital? I don't mind. I love to go to hospital. I love to build people up. They walk in with a smile on their face and the person feels better. People there feel better. Everybody feels better. I walk in like this. Ooh. You know, I'm thinking, oh, this is, oh, ventilator. Oh, gee. Man, that is, uh, uh, you know, that doesn't help anybody. It just doesn't. I've learned that. It's like, you know, and yet God is also bringing, bringing me along in maturity so that I can go there even though I don't want to be there and hopefully build people up and encourage them. And then when I leave, go, God, please don't ask me to do that again. I mean, you know, isn't there someone else? You know, here he is. Send him. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the prayer of many of us. Okay, how do we put all this together? Let's close with this. I saw this in a number of years ago when I first became a Christian and I thought it was a pretty interesting way of summarizing spiritual gifts. So here's the way this goes. The example is given of a dinner party. There's eight people present and the hostess drops the dessert. The person with the gift of prophecy says, that's what happens when you're not careful for the purpose of changing their habits. The person with the gift of service says, well, let me help you clean it up to encourage a friend. The person with the gift of teaching says, hey, the reason it fell was that you had a little too much weight on one side. Next time, you need to balance it out a little bit. The gift of ex exhortation. Hey, the next time, let's serve the dessert with the meal. <laughs> gift of giving. Don't worry. I'll be happy. I'm going to run to the store. I'll be right back. I'll go buy a new dessert. The gift of leadership or administration. Jim, you get the mop. Sue, help pick it up. Mary, go fix another dessert. <laughs> and the gift of mercy. Don't feel badly. It could have happened to anyone. And you know what? And when all those people are at that party, it's a beautiful picture of harmony, isn't it? See, and, and that's exactly what God has done. He has put together a very diverse body. There are many members. There's one body. There's one head, the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been saved to serve. And we do so by using the gift or gifts that God has given to each of us. We do it with the proper attitude of humility. We do it with a proper relationship to one another in harmony. We don't think our gifts more important than theirs, and we don't minimize theirs, and they don't minimize ours. But we recognize that each one of us have been uniquely gifted according to the grace that's given to us for the purpose of building up the body of Christ. We do it with the proper service. We do it heartily, vigorously, uh, with enthusiasm, you know, with intensity, with passion. Because, man, I mean, how much more excited can you get about serving the Lord who has given everything for you and for me? That's an exciting thing to do. 
This old hymn says it this way. Once it was the blessing, now it is the Lord. It says, once it was the feeling, now it is his word. Once his gifts I wanted, now the giver alone. Once I sought healing, now himself alone. Are you using your gift or gifts to serve the Lord and his people? And if not, why not? We've been saved to serve. We need to get busy and redeem the time wisely. Father, thank you for your word. Just thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for his death on the cross on our behalf for those who believe. We thank you for his resurrection from the dead. That he's proven that he has not only the ability to give life, but to forgive sin as well. We thank you that those who have come to faith in him are new creatures. That old things have passed away, all things become new. And we thank you for the gift or gifts that you have given us at that moment in time. May as we draw closer to you, may we identify those gifts that you have given us for the purpose of building up the body of Christ so that Jesus Christ can get all the glory. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.